welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallton, and today we're going to talk to Jordan Stanger Ross about his new edited book on the internment of Japanese Canadians during the Second World War. Jordan is an associate professor of history at the University of Victoria. He is also a director of an initiative called Landscapes of Injustice. This is a seven-year research project dedicated to studying the mass displacement and uprooting and dispossession of 21,000 Japanese Canadians from their homes, largely in coastal British Columbia. Professor Stanger Ross led the consortium of researchers to produce a major volume entitled Landscapes of Injustice, a new perspective on the internment and disposition of Japanese Canadians. This volume examines what happened between 1942 when the internment began and 1949 when the restrictions on Japanese Canadians were finally lifted. Jordan, welcome to Witness to Yesterday and thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Greg. So tell us a little bit about the origins of this collective project and this new book. Some years ago, I was conducting research of my own on an individual, a Japanese Canadian, who had participated in the dispossession of Japanese Canadians, Kishizo Kimura. And we have a, a prior volume of the research collective entitled Witness to Loss that focuses on, on Kimura's experience. And I was in the midst of that research, and I went into the Nikkei National Museum, which held key archival records, including Kimura's memoir of his activity. And I encountered there a level of engagement and interest and concern about the topic that I had never experienced in an archival setting before. The, the archivist there, Linda Komodo-Reed, uh, was bringing me things that I wasn't asking for and was trying to steer the, pro the, the research uh, process in various ways, conveying her own family's uh, experience. And, and I knew that, that Shirk had these partnership grants that allowed us to work with community organizations like that one in a way that actually benefited them, that some funds could flow to a participating institution like that one, which, you know, those institutions are always strapped for resources. And so that was the first of many conversations that built what was initially an individual research project of mine into a large collective effort to understand what had happened to the property of Japanese Canadians, why, who benefited, uh, how we should understand that loss over uh, and, and its legacies. Well, you've devoted much of your academic life in recent years to this project. So why were you willing to invest so much time and energy in this one subject? Well, it was it was sort of an accident. It 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 it, it, it started down. Um, it started in these relationships, and and then I and I think a lot of the people working in the together in this project were carried along by it. The record of the dispossession is so rich and diverse. The impacts of um, destroying people's homes are so profound. The complexity and diversity of Japanese Canadians' responses to that, uh, to that dispossession uh, seems so important that I think many of us were, were, were carried along by the depth and importance of the topic that we've, that we found ourselves working on together. And then, um, 
it was kind of inevitable to carry on, I, I would say. So what were the documentary and other sources that you relied upon, um, particularly for the publication of this book? Yeah, the whole project um, began with land title records. And in fact, I was in land title records for, for other reasons. And I recognized that we could learn from land title records who purchased the property of Japanese Canadians from the custodian of enemy property and what they did with that property. And an analysis of that land title data is, is now for the first time published in in the Landscapes of Injustice book. And I think it's a, it's an important contribution to understanding the material implications of the for sale of real estate. Having begun with land title, it uh, became clear that I needed to understand the administrative records of the bodies that had overseen those sales, that had ordered those sales. And that led to Library and Archives Canada and to vast archival resources, both within the records of the custodian of enemy property and then other adjacent government bodies like the Department of Labor that was actually overseeing the camps. It was in those records that I saw mention of this fellow Kishizo Kimura, who had a Japanese Canadian who participated in the committee of the custodian of enemy property. And his records were at the Nikkei National Museum, which brought in records held and preserved within the community into the project. And then finally, we conducted our, um, our own oral histories, over 130 oral histories of Japanese Canadians, bystanders, and witnesses to the, to the dispossession. And those major bodies of, of, of resource really underlie all of the work of the, of the volume and the research collection. Well, you're our witness to yesterday. So describe to our listeners what happened to the typical Japanese-Canadian family living in Vancouver in 1942 when this first uh, occurred. I think the, the, the contribution of our project, of our research, can be expressed in part through a letter from an actual Japanese-Canadian who had a farm in uh, the lower mainland of B.C., uh, his family, like other Japanese Canadians, were uprooted from their homes in the Lower Mainland in the summer of 1942. All Japanese Canadians were uprooted from the coast by late October. And his family had permission to settle in Alberta. And Japanese Canadians went to many different sites of internment. And some, like the Yonayama family, were able to settle in Alberta, where his daughters were already in school. And in 1943, Yonayama gets notice from the custodian of enemy property that his farm that he had left behind in trust to the, to the federal government was going to be forcibly sold. And he experiences this as a profound betrayal, or at least expresses it as a profound betrayal, and writes to federal officials to say, I've been in Canada since the very early part of this century. I've raised a family here. I'm, I've sent my oldest children to university and on the earnings of this farm that I built by hand, I intend to send my younger children as well. I'm approaching retirement age. I can't possibly rebuild my entire material life. I can't possibly support my children in the ways that I hope if you sell the farm for this uh, 
low amount that the government proposed. And in fact, he claimed to earn more annually off the farm than the sale price indicated. And so he says, I beg that you not sell, that you not sell my home. Uh, I beg that as promised, I be able to return to the farm and continue with the life that I had built for myself once this conflict is over. And he gets back a form letter, as do hundreds of Japanese Canadians who wrote similarly to the uh, federal government, indicating, we understand that the for sale of your property will be a matter of personal concern, but it is the policy of the government. And so his uh, farm is sold along with all of the property personal belongings, family heirlooms that Japanese Canadians were forced to leave behind when they were uprooted from the coast. And so our work is really to try and understand that era from the perspective of, of that dimension, to understand what it was to, to lose a home and how that decision was taken and what its implications were. Well, can you compare the Japanese internment and along with that, the other measures, including for sale of assets, uh, in terms of scale and scope to the German, Italian, and other internments in Canada during the Second World War? I admire this uh, recent book, Civilian Internment in Canada, which ties together the many internments that were occurring during this uh, period. But leaving aside the, the British transfers, the large number of people interned in Canada as a, a military measure who weren't Canadian civilians, the internment of Japanese Canadians is distinctive from that of German and Italian Canadians. One of the places we see this is in the, the initial orders for registration, but then also uprooting where Italians and Germans are treated on the basis of national identity. So uh, what we would call citizenship um, although there's no Canadian citizenship at the time. So German nationals and Italian nationals are targeted for forms of surveillance. And ultimately, those people who are interned are largely a subcategory of German and Italian nationals, German and Italian citizens, against whom there's some specific allegation. There are some Canadian nationals interned, uh, German and Italian, but in large part, it's a subset of the foreign nationals against whom there's some specific security concern. Those concerns are not well-founded. But what it means is that those people departing for internment, by and large, can leave their homes and belongings in the hands of family or friends or neighbors. Although there are uh, assets that come under control of the custodian of enemy property, we don't have the mass dispossession, the destruction of homes and communities within those uh, categories that we do with Japanese Canadians. Well, that's what struck me was the sheer scale. In the case of the Japanese Canadians, it was everyone, and that meant 22,000, whereas there were 847 German interments and 632 in Italian interments. The difference in scale is enormous here. There's the scale and then the totality in a way, where there's no one left behind if 22,000 Japanese Canadians had been uprooted, but an additional 22,000 had been allowed to stay home, the policy might have had a different implication. But um, the policy is applied on the basis of race, all persons of the Japanese race. And of course, that requires further sub-definitions. Persons of the Japanese race means persons wholly or partially of the Japanese race, um, kind of these circular definitions. But 
you, you, you have a policy that is enacted on the basis of race. And this is actually often misunderstood, including in prior accounts, where it's thought that the policy applied to um, Japanese Canadians by virtue of imagining them as, as aliens in law or construing them in law as, as enemy aliens, whereas in fact the law recognizes that they're dealing with British subjects of Canada, what we might call Canadian citizens, and nonetheless applies it to everyone on the basis of race. It's race law. At the time, some in the Canadian government argued in favor of a more benevolent trusteeship, but forced sale became the policy. Why was this? There's a lot of pressure for forced sales within the government itself. There isn't a public outcry. So th this is a distinction from the uprooting and internment where there, there was coverage in the press and there was high-level political discussion. By the time Japanese Canadians are all uprooted and interned, by 1943, when the government's thinking about the, the, the property, Japanese Canadians are gone from the coast. Their houses are almost all rented to tenants. Their personal belongings are warehoused or, or stored in their former houses. And um, no one thinks that there's any security threat. And mostly, it's not front page news anymore. It's not a high-level political matter either. But there are people who are concerned about the property. There's the people working in the Office of Custodian of Enemy Property who've been struggling from the outset to deal with the task assigned to them, which is to protect and preserve the property of people, uh, three quarters of whom are Canadians, Canadian citizens by birth and naturalization. It's a huge task. They're never good at it. They never commit really to it. And so they're looking for an alternative from, from an early juncture to, to what the legal mandate has been. At the same time, there are folks interested in that property. Uh, in the city of Vancouver, at the municipal level, uh, the city starts to talk about the um, clearing of the area, the largest Japanese neighborhood in Vancouver, the Powell Street area, and the reconstruction there of new modern workers' uh, housing. In other words, a slum clearance scheme in the Powell Street neighborhood. At the same time, the uh, Soldier Settlement Board is looking for property that can be distributed to veterans returning from war, conscious of the kinds of issues um, after the uh, First World War, and they want to accommodate uh, veterans. And so they're looking at Japanese-Canadian farms uh, from an early juncture. And then, in addition, the Department of Labor, which is overseeing these camps, has an interest in Japanese-Canadians having access to some liquid assets to cash so that some of the costs of interning Japanese Canadians, the costs of their sustenance uh, and food, can be borne by Japanese Canadians uh, themselves uh, using the funds realized in the sale of their assets. So you get these, these sources of pressure against the uh, property that are largely bureaucratic in nature. And the custodian, having struggled with the task of protection, is very um, receptive of this uh, pressure and pushes an argument up to cabinet that all of the property should be forcibly sold. So now I'd like to ask you about uh, Tommy Shoyama, who started a newspaper and was the editor of the Japanese Canadian Weekly, The New Canadian. Can you tell us 
what kind of newspaper this was, how important it was to the Japanese Canadian community, and why it was allowed to continue during the war by the Canadian government. I think actually we need a study of the new Canadian and probably a biography of Tom Shoyama that um, are both still lacking in the scholarship. Um, Shoyama's an amazing figure. Um, towards the end of the project, I... Um, I read his his arguments to the um, Royal Commission that was uh, struck in the post-war period to investigate Japanese-Canadians' material losses. This was and, the uh, Royal Commission on Japanese Claims? Yeah, that's right, or the Bird Commission. And Shoyama's analysis, having access to, to none of the archival record, uh, Shoyama's analysis is so uh, precise and um, it, uh, it, it is so exact in his analysis of what went wrong with uh, property of Japanese Canadians. And he identifies um, those struggles of the bureaucracy and, and, and just an amazing uh, written submission to the um, commission. And it just cemented my sense that of, of how extraordinary a figure he had been th throughout the war. Shoyama and the other ed Japanese Canadian editors of the paper do um, reassert control of it uh, in Caslow. And they do what I find to be a very interesting um, thing where they're still subject to censorship and they still have to carry official government announcements uh, about policy, but they often um, will accompany that with commentary or, or articles that question, uh, subtly draw into question the, the, the announcement of policy, the, the law that might be announced on the front page of the paper might be questioned in a, a subtly in an article in, on a subsequent page. I, I find a very um, fascinating and delicate kind of um, uh, approach that they take over time, they're, they're less delicate and are more able to articulate very clearly the kinds of activism that's occurring in the, in the community as well. So anyway, it's a very rich, rich paper. And, and I think, you know, the editorials that Shoryama himself writes are very, very powerful documents of this period. The paper is um, published in Vancouver. It's a, a paper of younger and more politically active Japanese Canadians among a number of community publications that exist in the pre-war period, some in English, some in Japanese. Uh, the paper's largely in English. And it, in the war years, is the only Japanese Canadian paper that is permitted to continue publishing. And the publishing offices relocate from Vancouver to Caslow, B.C., uh, beautiful lakeside um, um, village where the paper continues to publish. You know, we uh, we do still need that analysis of what role it played, but I think it tied uh, the community together in the social and other kinds of announcements and coverage that, that were uh, circulated in the paper. But what I've paid closest attention to is how it handles the um, announcements of government policy that are distributed through the paper. And so there's a brief period of time, about three months, in which the, um, the British Columbia Security Commission, which is the entity under the authority of the Department of Labor that's supervising the uprooting and the camps, actually seizes complete editorial control of the newspaper in order to counter what it says are uh, 
rumors circulating in the community that are misleading people to misconstrue the Canadian policy as 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 being malicious, uh, whereas in fact it's a you know careful policy. Says the, says uh, Austin Taylor, the head of that commission, that's taking due consideration of their well being and so on. And so during the, the 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 most active period of the uprooting of people it's actually um, a government organ it's a it's a government communications mechanism to communicate the policy and to try there's a fair bit of concern in the in the BCSC that Japanese Canadians will resist and that this will have to become a very different kind of operation if Japanese Canadians are actively resisting their internment. And one of the things that Japanese Canadians are concerned about in that period is that no, um, initially at least, no real assurance has been given to them that they'll ever be able to return to their lives or that the policies won't leave them destitute. And so the uh, government seizes control of the paper and communicates to Japanese Canadians, we're holding your, your property as a protective measure only, and uh, it will be returned to you as soon as possible. And and therefore, you needn't worry that this is anything but a temporary measure. Right. And so exactly the opposite happens. <laughs> exactly the opposite happens. You know, later is, as we mentioned, this Royal Commission, the Bird Commission, uh, examining Japanese claims between 1947 and 1951. Describe to us why the Bird Commission was set up what was its formal mandate and what did it actually accomplish on behalf of the Japanese Canadian community? The Bird Commission emerges as part of this story that sparks some of my initial interest in, in, in this topic, which is that in 1942, thousands of Canadians loot the homes of that Japanese Canadians have left behind, the businesses, the farms. Um, stealing virtually everything that they can get their hands on. So there's thousands of complicit people. In 1943, the federal government announces the forced sale of property and uh, places that on the front page of, uh, of papers, uh, you know, real estate for sale. Uh, people acquire businesses of Japanese Canadians, put signs on the, on the uh, windows saying under white ownership under new white ownership. There's scarcely any objections raised outside of within the federal bureaucracy, as you mentioned, some people oppose, and Japanese Canadians vociferously oppose this policy from the outset, including by launching a legal challenge. But there's scarcely any wider public objection to the policy. And, and the sales continue in 44, they continue into the post-war period. But uh, as does generally with human rights um, uh, activism at the time, civil rights activism at the time, we start to get a critique of the policies. And that critique focuses on two very draconian dimensions of the Canadian policy. One is the attempt to deport almost half of the Japanese Canadian population, or pre-war population, and about 10,000 people. And then also the for sale of property. And uh, Canadians start to ask in the pages of the Globe and Mail, uh, the Toronto Star, you know, what kind of a country is this that would deport people against their will to a country they've never before visited, people, people who are Canadian citizens? And what kind of a country is it that seizes and sells all the assets of uh, citizens? And what does, what does citizenship mean 
in, in such a context. And that shift from um, mass complicity to, 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 to a situation where the government starts to want to sweep somewhat under the rug what it's doing and has to abandon um, the deportation midstream. That that abrupt shift is is still very fascinating to me. I, I uh, there are explanations that we have in the historiography, but I I, I still find it a puzzling shift. Um, as part of that shift, the government realizes that it needs to do something to at least seem to have addressed the um, dispossession of property of Canadians, and so in forty seven launches this uh, royal commission, which with really. Uh, limited uh, a limited mandate that is largely meant to display um, the efforts of the of the government to uh, address um, that injustice. And uh, a graduate student of mine, uh, Caitlin Finley, uh, wrote a wonderful thesis on this topic, and she has chapters in the book. She has she's contributed to several chapters in the book, but one of them deals centrally with this uh, Bird Commission. So, what did it actually accomplish then? Different chapters in, in, in the book handle the Bird Commission differently. And I think we want to tell a complex story of the Bird Commission. Prior research had tended to dismiss the Bird Commission for its failings. And it is a failure. It, it, it fails to adequately address the dispossession. If that, if that was um, something we imagined the Bird Commission might do, it, it doesn't do that. So what did it accomplish? So on, in the first instance, it's a historical setting in its, in its own right, where uh, thousands of pages of testimony of Japanese Canadians about their losses is recorded. So one of the things it did was create a record of that grievance on the part of Japanese Canadians. Uh, another thing it did in significant part was to compensate Japanese Canadians on a very narrow definition of what their loss had been, which is a comparison to market value sales at the time of the sales themselves. So this is an important question. Did the government seize the property and sell it far below what, it, what its value was? And did Japanese Canadians lose, you know, lose materi materially because of that? And the answer the Bird Commission finds is uneven across different uh, forms of property and locations, farms in particular, which were sold to the uh, internally within the government to the Soldier Settlement Board, were badly devalued and deliberately so. And the Bird Commission finds that to be the case and compensates Japanese Canadian uh, owners by giving them almost almost doubling what they what they had uh, received from the custodian of enemy property but the problem with that form of compensation the property was gaining in value during this period the market was going up and very shortly after the war of course the market would continue to skyrocket upwards Japanese Canadians were divested from uh, the, the, the market, um, banned from purchasing real estate, and forced to use the funds from the sale of their uh, real estate to, per to, to, to subside during uh, the 1940s. And so 
they're really divested from the market for a long period of time. And the losses that they suffer are 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 the are can be measured against, for example, the benefit to the purchasers of those properties. So the people who purchased the property are now uh, now own real estate that is rapidly increasing in value. Farms in the lower mainland are subdivided into suburban uh, cul-de-sacs. And uh, people get wealthy off of this. So those those Japanese Canadians who owned real estate in the pre-war period sit on the verge of um, multi-generational benefit, um, as many families uh, do benefit. Uh, mine has, and I would imagine yours, <laughs> Greg, from investments of real estate over the years. And 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 they're just torn out of that uh, market with multi-generational um, um, consequences. And so it's that loss, a loss that is situated in the longer history of families, longer histories of real estate markets, that the Bird Commission refuses to contemplate. And Tom Shoyama, when he comes to the commission, says, you have to think about real estate uh, on, on these terms. That, um, you you can't think of them only in that moment of sale and narrowly compensate uh, a ten percent or even a seventy percent um, uh, additional award in the case of some uh, rural real estate. You have to think about what the consequences for these people uh, uh, were of being divested from uh, the market for at least a decade and then and then seeking to rebuild their lives uh from scratch uh after okay to to end this interview i want to move decades forward to 1988 and the first acknowledgement of wrongdoing and the first public apology for what happened what was the historical significance of this acknowledgement and public apology, and why did it take so long? Well, those are those are big <laughs> those are big questions. Um, we we talk about the redress in a couple of chapters in the book. One of which is a is a, is a lovely chapter by uh, Art Mickey. We were really privileged on our project to work with Art and to have him as a part of our research collective. And Audrey Kobayashi, who's a well-known geographer, who was also part of the um, Redress Committee in the 1980s. And Art talks about, as of other community members who I've worked with, the, the process of rebuilding the community after its forced uh, dispersal and the, de the deportations that occurred. And then there, there are... There are um, uh, less coordinated, let's say, um, activism to try and redress some of these harms, including a, a law case that goes to the Supreme Court of Canada in the 1960s. But in, in the 1970s, a movement starts to emerge. And that movement is not uncontroversial within the community. Uh, it, it doesn't have initially majority uh, support. And so there's work to do for um, within the community for them to uh, feel that it is um, the right thing to do and an advisable thing to do to seek redress for, for those harms. And it's not something for which there's much precedent at that time, although there's a process in the United States at the same uh, time. And Art talks about the internal and external uh, challenges of, of then pursuing redress with the, with the, with the federal uh, government in that period. 
my my energy has been focused somewhat on the, um, the 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 legacies of redress, what what redress and what the acknowledgement of wrongdoing has meant since or can mean since. And I work uh, in the last substantive chapter of the book with a political scientist, Matt James, a colleague of mine at uh, the University of Victoria in political science, and um, and. Uh, and that work has been very interesting to me. And Matt's perspective on, uh, or our joint perspective, I guess, that we developed together on apologies, I find um, very generative. And I, I've thought about it a lot since. There's, there's, there's um, a critique of, of apologies as empty or limited and adequate that I think is, is fairly common. And Matt and I instead try to interrogate what kinds of ongoing democratic work these very imperfect apologies can still do. And in the case of our uh, of this area, at least, it's very clear that on the one hand, the redress funds themselves funded key organizations like the Nikkei National Museum, that's a major partner on our Landscapes and Justice project, that can continue to sh- to shed light on uh, on this history, um, and to build community in all kinds of of other ways and support that the reconstruction of that community in all kinds of ways, um, but also that the the critiques that we have of of the apologies are, are themselves uh, uh, generative. So the the, the ways in which the apologies fail can be generative of interrogation of historical injustice that tends to, or can tend to at least, um, produce uh, a sense of political and social accountability. So if we're looking at the apology to Japanese Canadians, for example, and we observe that it fails to uh, recognize the complicity of many thousands of Canadians in, uh, for instance, looting and stealing from Japanese Canadians. It tends to exceptionalize that moment of the 1940s as if there wasn't structural racism underlying it that made it possible. And rather than um, condemn the uh, acknowledgement for those uh, weaknesses, uh, Matt and I try to suggest that in interrogating and in critiquing it to the extent that, that a redress agreement establishes institutions that are supportive of those types of critique, um, that we continue to do the work of producing accountability within our democratic society. Well, this book is a very important part of that accountability. And Jordan, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Greg. My guest today was Jordan Stanger Ross. He is the author of Landscape of Injustice, a new perspective on the internment and disposition of Japanese Canadians, published by McGill Queen's University Press in 2020. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you can become a subscribing member and help support the preservation and publication of documentary history in Canada. If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast was made possible by members of the Champlain Society. 
We want to thank the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, the University of Ottawa Press, and UBC Press. My name is Greg Marshallden. This interview was recorded on December 3rd, 2020, in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt.